Uh, what has brought me back on this occasion uh, was an invitation to speak at the convocation at uh, Liberty University. And uh, when that invitation came a few months ago, I recall getting in touch with Pastor Nathan and saying, um, yeah, I'd like to also share with, God, with uh, God's people there by way of God's word and also just uh, bring to their attention the fact that I'm not just involved as a pastor of a church. That's very important. Uh, it's number one. But I'm also involved with uh, the starting of uh, a Christian university back home called the African Christian University. I'm mindful that I'm in a church that is very involved in, in the work of missions. Uh, there was already news here about a team that's preparing to head out to uh, Tanzania. And I'm sure there are a lot of other works that are wheels that are currently running all to get the gospel out. And uh, in one sense, it would almost be unfair to add an extra something for you to pray about and think of supporting. But as I said in the last session, uh, I'm a church pastor. And back home, I know that when I want to give work to somebody that desperately needs to be done, I give it to somebody who's already very busy doing something in the church. And that's how it gets done. And so in the same way, a church that is already mission-minded, that's the church that you go to and say, pray about something extra to do with the work of missions. So again, that's how I found myself here and my wife. Uh, we, we've come to dearly appreciate what God is doing among you. If we could sort of just close that little portion or compartment in your mind and open another, which is to do with uh, what I've really come to do in front here, the preaching of God's word, please turn with me to Isaiah and chapter 52. Isaiah and chapter 52. I am speaking on the subject of uh, Christ, the humiliated and exalted Savior. That's what I, I love to do. It is to preach Christ. So when I dealt with the, the power of the cross, it was again Christ and him crucified. Uh, today I'm dealing with Christ again in his humiliated and exalted state. We'll read chapter 52 of Isaiah verse 13 to verse 15, and then I'll explain to you the background of all this. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The Bible reads there, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings 
shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. The passage of scripture that I have drawn your attention to is one of the seven songs in the prophecy written by Isaiah. There are four of them. The first is found in chapter 42, the first nine verses. The second is found in chapter 49. The third is in chapter 50. And then this is the very last one. All of them speak about the servant being sent by God, one who's going to serve him, one who's going to suffer for him, to do so sacrificially, and then finally accomplish the purpose of God, resulting in him being exalted. The one that we've just read goes all the way to the end of chapter 53. It's probably the most well-known of all the four songs. It is one that so pointedly fixes before our eyes the suffering Savior and his final exhortation that finally all it is saying to us is that this is the way of salvation. Look at him who has been sent as Savior. Trust in him that ultimately you might find salvation. And that salvation is not found in a pastor. It is not found in you trying to do something through your efforts, whether it is legalistic activities, religious rituals, baptism, as we've already seen here. All these don't save. What ultimately saved, saves is a look at the Savior, Jesus Christ. It is believing in him, trusting in him, wholly, completely, which is the testimony that we heard from our two friends here. Well, as we come to look at this passage of Scripture, I am hoping that we're just looking at the introduction, by the way, just this first part in chapter 52, verse 13 to 15, but we will peep at the last section as well as we go through this message. And all I am doing, and I hope God will help me, is to, to draw your attention to this Christ, that if you have not yet trusted in him, today you will do so and consequently find salvation in him. It's, it's the heart of our message, not only within North America, but right across the world when we are thinking of missions, what we are thinking primarily about is proclaiming Christ, the humiliated and exalted Christ. Let's see the way in which Isaiah opens this up for us in this last seventh song, verse 13 to verse 15 
of chapter 52. He begins with what I am calling here the God-ordained grand finale. Uh, that's referring to the ultimate end of the story. Isaiah, like much of uh, Hebrew poetry, begins with the end, where the author was as he was beginning to pen down that section of poetry. And then having opened it up, he then goes to the beginning of the story and builds it back to the great crescendo. Well, that's exactly what he is doing here. He begins by telling us that this servant, this Messiah who's going to come, on one hand, will act wisely, he says. Behold, my servant will act wisely. And then he speaks about the consequence of that, the reward that he will get for acting wisely. And what is that? He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Why is he beginning on that note? Well, it's because earlier in Isaiah, our attention is drawn to another servant. That servant did not act wisely. That servant, in the end, was not exalted. Instead, was badly humiliated, punished by God. And who is that servant? It's Israel, the nation of Israel, that was to be sent as a light to the Gentiles to, to bring attention to us concerning the God who is there, the salvation that he provides, that the nations might come to this God. Let me quickly show this to you in um, Isaiah and chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41. And uh, we shall see there verse 8 and verse 9. Isaiah 41 Verse 8 and verse 9. The Bible says there, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you, and not cast you off. Well, what do we see concerning this servant Israel? How did they carry on their God-given assignment? Let's quickly go to the next chapter, chapter 42. And uh, this time, we are looking at verse 18 to the end of this chapter. We won't read the whole of it, but I hope you will, we will read enough for you to see the disaster that they were. Verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? 
or blind as the servant of the Lord. He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. And what did he do as a result of that? He punished the people of Israel. Look at verse 22. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. So that's what has happened to this servant. And we know that from the rest of history. But here is another. And this another is fulfilled in the Messiah, fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are being told here that in his case, he fulfilled his task. He acted wisely. And consequently, out of this, he has been given the honor of being highly exalted. A former generation of Christians used to refer to the work of Jesus Christ as his active and passive obedience. His active and passive obedience. He himself spoke in terms of, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. He was so fixated upon doing the will of God that he alone qualified as one who was absolutely blameless, absolutely righteous. He, he, he followed the will of God like a plumb line, straight all the way to glory. Well, that's where we begin. It is simply this peep at the God-ordained crescendo that's coming because he has done what God entrusted into his hands. Well, now let's jump into the middle section. As I said, that's now giving us a sense of where all this is going. And so uh, Isaiah brings to our attention the agonizing humiliation of this servant of the Lord. The agonizing humiliation. Look at verse 14, back to Isaiah and chapter 52. The Bible says there, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The point that is being brought out there is simply the fact that this servant was not only going to obey, but he was going to suffer in that obedience. He was going to so suffer that when you finally looked at him, he was unrecognizable. He's, he was completely disfigured. He was marred 
beyond human likeness. That's the story of the suffering servant. We know the story that literally from birth all the way to his death, he was hunted like a wild animal. In fact, he had to run away into Egypt for a season, literally from the crib, in order to escape the powers of the potentate in his own day. And even when he came back and became an itinerant preacher, the leaders of Israel were after him. He was a hunted man. He was a marked man. Wherever he went, they tried to contradict him. They, they, they persecuted him. And, and, and finally, they, they used one of his own disciples, Judas, to arrest him and take him into a mock trial. When they brought him in, you could see that they were literally not wanting to to put him into a proper trial, they were still looking for something that would then result into a capital offense and capital punishment. And the moment he hinted at anything to do with divinity, they tore their clothes and said, what else do you want from this person? He, he's blasphemed. He, he deserves to die. And, and they rushed him over to Pilate. And as much as Pilate could not see anything warranting death, the pressure was building and building. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Until finally he called for a basin of water, washed his hands and said, okay, do with him as you please. And Jesus was scourged, brutally so. It was an inhuman treatment that he underwent. A crown of thorns was put together and thrust upon his head as he was being mocked as king of the Jews. And it is something of that picture that is captured here. Even before he was finally nailed to the cross, he was so beaten, to borrow the words of Isaiah here, that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Finally, the most agonizing form, the most cruel form of death engineered by man was put upon him. He was, as it were, hung up to dry. It wasn't just that. God's wrath was poured upon him. Hence he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ was crushed on that cross. We pause to ask the question, why? Here was a righteous man. He was the darling of God, the very son of the living God. Why did he have to undergo this suffering? Why? Well, thankfully, Isaiah chapter 53 brings out the answer at least four times. Let's go there. 
Isaiah chapter 53, and we begin with verse 6. The Bible says there, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the explanation. It was that this holy God was doing a transaction when Jesus was hanging on the cross. The guilt of our sin was being transferred to his account so that he could now be treated as though he is the one who had committed all those atrocities. It was a substitutionary atonement taking place here. Verse 8. We read there, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? And listen to this. Stricken for the transgression of my people. Beaten for what my people have done. Scourged because my people have sinned against me. Crushed because of their sin. We also read there, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. We've already seen something of the bearing of these iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What we haven't picked up is that this was a way to make many to be accounted righteous. In other words, this Jesus had lived a perfectly righteous life from birth. And what he did was to take that righteousness and set it aside as he took to himself our sin. And consequently, God punished him in our place so that that righteousness of his can be given to us freely. Freely. We don't have to work for it. The transaction took place at the cross. That despite all the sins that we have committed against this living God, he is willing to account us as righteous on the basis of this great transaction that took place at Calvary when the Son of God died. And then lastly, verse 12. Verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And listen to this. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
So when we look at Calvary, we're not just seeing the miscarriage of justice. As we see somebody who is so disfigured due to the inhuman treatment that he undergoes, what we see there is an act of substitution. An act of substitution. Is that your understanding of Calvary? Do you look at the cross and say, my sin, all oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Is that your view? Is that your understanding of what transpired upon the cross? Well, that's what Isaiah 53 is telling us. That's how to understand that miscarriage of justice. But let's hurry on to the third and last part. And it is the matchless exaltation of this one that was marred beyond human likeness. This one who finally died on the cross. He expired. He paid the price for sin. The Bible reads there, back to our text, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and exalted, lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. Here is our text. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, the sea, and that which they have not heard, they understood. The language there of sprinkling is language that is borrowed from the tabernacle and the temple, that individuals that sinned against God would bring a sacrifice, an animal, to be slaughtered. Its blood would be taken by the priest and sprinkled upon the altar. Or on the day of atonement, the high priest himself would take a bull, again have it slaughtered, again take that blood, this time into the holy of holies, and there again sprinkle the blood. It was saying, here is a sinner, here is a nation of sinners. They deserve to die. But another has taken their place. And here is the evidence. Blood has been shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But here is the blood that has been shed. Therefore, they can now go with the shalom, peace, as though they haven't sinned. Well, 
previously it would have been an individual, it would have been a nation, but now he shall sprinkle many nations, many nations, many tribes, many peoples, many languages, many nations. Across history, his sacrifice is sufficient for all and indeed for you as well. So that your sins may be forgiven. So that God might accept you just as you are. That you might find cleansing through his shed blood. Having thus died, Jesus did not remain dead. He rose again. The tomb could not keep him. He had satisfied the justice of God completely. And consequently, there was a change of gears as he was raised from the dead, as he ascended to heaven, as he was now given the highest place in the universe. Why? Because of what he had done. He had obeyed and now he was being rewarded. The Apostle Paul captures this in um, Philippians and chapter 2. I'll read that and then take you to a picture of this in the book of Revelation. Philippians chapter 2, and I begin reading from verse 5. The Bible says there, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, though he was God, God the Son, and he still remains God, he did not hang on to that rainbow-circled throne surrounded by thousands upon thousands of angels. He was willing to descend, to, to come down, to, to be humiliated, to become a servant. We are told there, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, I can add the word further, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What has God done? Verse Nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the matchless, supreme exaltation that is his because he took our place. Lastly, Isaiah, rather, Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. 
I won't read the whole of it. Let me begin with verse 9. And they sang a new song. This is John being given a vision of the ascended Christ and with a telescopic eye seeing from that moment all the way to the final, final exhortation of Jesus as every knee bows. Verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Our text is saying, kings who had put up the most magnificent coronation activities when they ascended their throne, will look at all that and see it like little children playing in the mud. Nothing compared to this glorious exaltation of the Son of God. That's where history is going, friends. And as I already said, Israel failed miserably. Jesus did not. He obeyed. He's been exalted already. The exaltation continues, especially as he draws in his people. He suffered. He died. But he is not dead. He is risen from the dead and right now sits at, on the throne of the entire universe. He alone is my hope of salvation. He alone is our hope of salvation and reconciliation with God. He alone is your hope, your only hope of ever being reconciled to God, being accepted by God. He is that servant who has fulfilled all the demands of, his, of this great and awesome God. He obeyed unto death, death upon the cross. Let me ask, have you come to this Christ? Have you come to this servant saying, 
nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. I'm naked. I come to you for dress. I'm helpless. I'm powerless. I look to you for grace. I'm dirty. I'm foul. I fly to your mount fountain. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Have you done that? To cling only to the cross, knowing that it's the only way of salvation. God promised it already in Isaiah, fulfilled right across the Bible. Have you come to him that way? Have you come to him in the words of the hymn writer saying, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is that your faith? Oh, that I would plead with you today. Don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in horses. Don't trust in fellow human beings. Don't even trust in yourself. Don't trust in religious rituals, whether it's the breaking of bread or baptism. Trust in this humiliated and exalted Savior. Trust in Him. He will save you from your sin. Let's pray. Eternal and gracious God in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you saw our helplessness, our imprisonment in sin, and sent a sufficient Savior. Thank you that Jesus came and acted wisely. Thank you that he obeyed you where we have utterly and completely failed to obey. Thank you that he has died. Oh, Lord, thank you that he obeyed you to the cross knowing the amount of suffering he was going to undergo. Thank you. Thank you. And as we meditate on him crucified, humiliated and exalted, we pray for those among us who have not thus trusted in Christ that today might be their day of salvation. Oh Lord, Hear this prayer that no doubt is in so many of the pews in this place. Save the lost. Through the gospel we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.